and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And today we're back with part two of our look at Peter Baelish. In part one, we looked at Littlefinger's political and economic manipulation of Westeros specific to King's Landing and laid out his use of spies and agents, as well as his role in the deaths of John Arryn, Ned Stark, and Joffrey Baratheon. Yeah, so we hope that you checked out part one first, because it makes sense to listen that way. And now, as promised, today we'll consider his youth and relationship with House Tully, and his plotting involving Sansa Stark and the Vale, as well as his ultimate endgame, and where we see things heading in the Winds of Winter. And once again, we'll be talking about the Elaine Winds of Winter spoiler chapter, so a heads up for that. Okay, and we want to take a minute to have just a quick word about our upcoming plans. Show season is approaching, and like the fact or loathe it, HBO's Game of Thrones will be veering off into uncharted Winds of Winter-based material. As a book-only podcast, this leaves us in a spot, as we want to cover it. Yeah, we do. So we're going to be hopping over to the History of Westeros podcast for the duration of Season 6. We'll help Aziz and Ashea review the episodes and talk about the implications for the books. We'll be doing live video feeds with them, and as always, the audio will be released afterwards in podcast format. We did this last season, in Season 5, and we really had a blast. So if you like the show, please consider checking us out on the History of Westeros podcast or their YouTube channel, Westeros History, for the video feed. And since the show seems to take everyone's attention in season and with those weekly video casts, we aren't going to promise a new episode for you in this location until the show's over. We hope you can all understand that. And remember, there's our back catalog of 40 hours of Radio Westeros to check out if you haven't done so already. We will, however, be going to Balticon in May of 2016, where George R. R. Martin is guest of honor. And if he reads a previously unreleased chapter, we might put out an episode about that. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you're going to Balticon, held in Baltimore during May the 27th to the 30th, please come by and say hello. We'd really love to meet some of you listeners in person. Okay, so that's it for announcements. Now it's time to get going with a brief overview of Littlefinger's youth with the Tully family at Riverrun. He had been a sly child, but after his mischiefs, he always looked contrite. It was a gift he had. The years had not changed him much. Peter had been a small boy, and he had grown into a small man, an inch or two shorter than Catelyn, slender and quick, with the sharp features she remembered and the same laughing, grey-green eyes. Okay, so we discussed in the last episode how it came to be that Peter Baelish a young lad from a tiny holding on the fingers, came to be fostered by one of the great lords of the realm. It seems that Papa Baelish may have had some of his son's talent for making the most of the opportunities in life. In fact, in another era, the Baelish family might have been called social climbers. Well, Peter himself must have had a considerable amount of ambition, even as a boy, because Lysa mentions telling her father about him, he'll rise high. That he resented his foster family's wealth and power is hinted at in this exchange with Tyrion from Clash of Kings. Tyrion tells him, 
I mean to make you liege lord of the Trident. These river lords have proven they cannot be trusted. Let them do you fealty for their lands. Even the Tullies? If there are any Tullies left when we're done. Littlefinger looked like a boy who had just taken a furtive bite from a honeycomb. He was trying to watch for bees, but the honey was so sweet. So the description of Littlefinger as a boy in that passage, paired with the references to the Tullies, really seems designed to show the sort of resentment that fueled his ambitions from a very early age. And this resentment would only be further exacerbated as events unfolded in that long-ago time at Riverrun. Cat's encounter with her one-time foster brother in A Game of Thrones brings back a series of memories of the child Peter, including the fact that he was a sly child and, quote, even as a child he had always loved his silver. These memories continue to come back to her throughout the rest of her point of views, normal childhood memories of making mud pies, playing at kissing, of traveling together with Lord Hoster and becoming lost in a dense fog, and later of pretending to be Jenny and Prince Duncan at Oldstones. But as Catelyn was approaching King's Landing on that covert visit to her husband in game, we learned that there was a history between Catelyn and Peter Baelish that went beyond being foster siblings. When she told Sir Roderick, We grew up together in Riverrun. I thought of him as a brother, but his feelings for me were more than brotherly. When it was announced that I was to wed Brandon Stark, Peter challenged him for the right to my hand. Hmm... That Peter Baelish once loved Catelyn Tully and fought a duel with Ned's brother over her might seem a minor detail, except for the enigmatic nature of his first on-page interaction with Cat, and the fact that during her visit to King's Landing, she thinks about how little she trusts him in spite of their childhood history, although she does ultimately end up placing a lot of faith in him. But it's through Sansa's point of view that we begin to wonder what his motivations truly are, and what his current feelings about Catelyn are. Yeah, there's definitely something creepy about Littlefinger's interactions with Sansa from the first. He's always stroking her cheek and making enigmatic comments. And here are her thoughts when she's brought before the council after her father's arrest. She could feel Littlefinger staring. Something about the way the small man looked at her made Sansa feel as though she had no clothes on. Goosebumps pimpled her skin. Hmm. Well, as we mentioned in our last episode, we learned much later that Baelish had already offered to wed Sansa at that point. And moments later in that council meeting, Littlefinger makes an offhand comment that gives the reader a glimpse behind the mask when he tells Cersei, She reminds me of the mother, not the father. Look at her. The hair, the eyes, she's the very image of Cat at the same age. So, by this point, all of his strange behaviour towards Sansa should make some sense to the reader. It appears that Baelish still carries a torch for Catelyn Tully, and has become bizarrely fascinated by her young daughter. From their very first encounter at the Tourney of the Hand, Littlefinger has made Sansa uncomfortable, as this passage shows. When Sansa finally looked up, a man was standing over her, staring. He was short, with a pointed beard and a silver streak in his hair, almost as old as her father. You must be one of her daughters, he said to her. 
He had grey-green eyes that did not smile when his mouth did. You have the Tully look. I'm Sansa Stark, she said, ill at ease. The man wore a heavy cloak with a fur collar, fastened with a silver mockingbird, and he had the effortless manner of a high lord, but she did not know him. I have not had the honour, my lord. While Sansa's courtesy never fails her, in spite of her discomfort and confusion, the reader already knows about Baelish's former passion for Catelyn at this point, and we soon share some of Sansa's unease at the attention he's showing to Cat's young daughter. In this scene, he goes on to touch Sansa's cheek and make a comment about Cat having once been his queen of love and beauty. And this could be a reference to the duel with Brandon Stark, although in that case it's a very selective memory. Or it could just be something simpler, like a childhood game for example. In either case, by now we've been put on notice that this non-POV character is very complex, with motivations that encompass ambition, love, resentment and possibly revenge. And we shouldn't forget the author's comments on his Machiavellian nature either. So with all that in mind, we're going to continue our quest to untangle this very complicated character with a close look at his relationships with the two daughters of the family that fostered him. Your mother was my queen of beauty once. His breath smelled of mint. You have her hair. His fingers brushed against her cheek as he stroked one auburn lock. Quite abruptly, he turned and walked away. So, as we mentioned, while Peter Baelish was fostered at Riverrun and grew up with the Tully children, he apparently developed feelings for Catelyn early on, which not only culminated in his infamous duel with Brandon Stark, but also resulted in Peter's repeated insistence that he took both Cat's and Lysa's maidenheads. Right, and the story of Peter's duel with Brandon Stark is revealed slowly during game, while the details of his relationships with Cat and Liza must be pieced together from references laid out all the way through A Storm of Swords. It begins with Cat telling Sir Roderick that they grew up together, but that Peter's feelings were more than brotherly. She mentions the duel with Brandon, and that her father sent him away afterwards. Then, during their initial meeting in King's Landing, she reflects on Peter's sly and mischievous nature and thinks that he has changed very little. Well, it certainly turns out that she's right about that. Now, the next mention of the duel with Brandon comes up in Peter's first rather tense introduction to Ned in the council chamber, and it comes up again when Cat, Ned, and Littlefinger are discussing the dagger sent to kill Bran. Littlefinger advises them to forget the dagger, and Ned tells him, Lord Baelish, I am a Stark of Winterfell. My son lies crippled, perhaps dying. He would be dead and Catelyn with him, but for a wolf pup we found in the snow. If you truly believe I could forget that, you are as big a fool now as when you took up sword against my brother. And Littlefinger's reply is, in hindsight, a statement of sorts on his endgame. A fool I may be, Stark, yet I'm still here, while your brother has been mouldering in his frozen grave for some fourteen years now. So with all the tension between Ned and Littlefinger, it's left to Catelyn to smooth things over with Baelish, 
when, before her departure, and in spite of her earlier thought that she didn't really trust him, she says, I will not forget the help you gave me, Peter. When your men came for me, I did not know whether they were taking me to a friend or an enemy. I have found you more than a friend. I have found a brother I'd thought lost. And as we've mentioned, her encounter with Peter in King's Landing seemed to trigger a series of childhood memories. These memories of childhood appear more poignant to Kat than ever in the face of all the loss she suffers during her remaining chapters. And perhaps the most poignant memories of all come to her whilst in the Vale, first when she confronts Tyrion Lannister about the dagger, and later in the face of Bronn's duel with Vardis Egan. Yeah, when Tyrion denies the dagger is his, Cat wonders why Peter would lie to her. Considering she has placed her trust in him and declared him a brother, it's a fair question from her perspective. Tyrion is the first to introduce Littlefinger's claim to have taken Catelyn's maidenhead, when he tells her that lying is in Littlefinger's nature and says, You ought to know that, you of all people. Why, every man at court has heard him tell how he took your maidenhead, my lady. Okay, so Kat misinterprets this as Tyrion being a liar, or at least spreading vile lies. But really, Tyrion doesn't believe this story. He was using Littlefinger's claim as an example of his well-known lying, assuming that Kat would be aware of it and acknowledge the treacherous nature of her one-time foster brother. But Kat, with her newly renewed trust in Baelish, is indignant. Her denial and Tyrion's response not only show her naivete as far as Peter is concerned, but throw serious doubt on his recent declarations of devotion. Here's the exchange. Peter Baelish loved me once. He was only a boy. His passion was a tragedy for all of us, but it was real and pure and nothing to be made mock of. He wanted my hand. That is the truth of the matter. You are truly an evil man, Lannister. And you are truly a fool, Lady Stark. Littlefinger has never loved anyone but Littlefinger, and I promise you that it is not your hand that he boasts of. It's those ripe breasts of yours and that sweet mouth and the heat between your legs. So it's very plain that Kat considers Baelish's youthful passion almost a treasured memory. Real and pure, she says, and seems quite angry at the implication that there was something dirty or unsavoury about it. For his part, Tyrion implies that Littlefinger had a mostly sexual interest in Cat that may have turned into a level of obsession with the passage of time. It's certainly not entirely normal for a man to brag about his youthful encounters so many years later, especially when the woman in question went on to become the wife of one of the highest lords in the land, the best friend of the king, to boot. Well, it's a bit shallow and juvenile, to say the least. Anyway, not long after, as Kat watches Bronn and Servardus dueling, she's reminded vividly of, quote, another duel in another time. She recalls that she gave Brandon her favor to wear, and that Peter refused to yield, and when he fell with a wound that she thought was mortal, quote, he looked at her as he fell and murmured Cat as the bright blood came flowing out between his mailed fingers. She also recalls that she didn't see him after that until she came in secret to King's Landing, and that her father had forbidden her to visit him as he lay wounded in his chamber. He saw only Lysa, 
and as soon as he was strong enough to be moved, he was sent back to the fingers. And it seems to be with some regret that Cat recalls that she never comforted him, nor said farewell. And then in Clash, when Tyrion is baiting Littlefinger to test his loyalties, he asks Baelish about his relationships with the Tullys. Littlefinger replies that he was close to the girls, especially, and that he had their maidenhoods. So he makes the same claim about both sisters. And he goes on to casually agree to perform some sexual diplomacy with Liza Arryn. But what stands out to the reader and to Tyrion is the quite believable way in which he delivers the information. Tyrion is convinced it's a lie based on his recent experience with Catelyn. But Littlefinger seems to believe the story. Yeah, and Jamie repeats the rumour to Cat later on in Clash, saying, I don't think I'll fuck you after all. Littlefinger had you first, didn't he? I never eat off another man's trencher. And combined with Jamie's story about the dagger matching up with Tyrion's story, in spite of them not having seen each other for a year, Cat experiences a whisper of doubt about Peter's version of things. Here's the passage. Tyrion Lannister had said much the same thing as they rode through the mountains of the moon, Catelyn remembered. She had refused to believe him. Peter had sworn otherwise. Peter, who had been almost a brother. Peter, who had loved her so much he fought a duel for her hand. And yet, if Jamie and Tyrion told the same tale, what did that mean? The brothers had not seen each other since departing Winterfell more than a year ago. Somewhere there was a trap here. Well, as we see elsewhere... Cat has decent instincts, but fails to put all the pieces together. Not something that should be necessarily held against her, since the pieces are many and oddly shaped, and she was certainly dealing with a lot in those months. At any rate, getting back to Littlefinger, early in Storm, he's sent back to the Vale to conduct that diplomacy he once discussed with Tyrion. Only now Tywin has granted him Harrenhal in truth and thus given him the power to finally offer Liza marriage, which he promises to do, in exchange for a reward to be named later, which we have every reason to suppose might have been Sansa had events not intervened that altered his short-term plans. Hmm, And speaking of Sansa, it's through her point of view, in that fateful scene at the moon door in the Eyrie with her aunt, that we finally learn the whole story of what happened between Peter Baelish and the daughters of Riverrun. Lysa has become jealous of Sansa after witnessing Peter kissing her in the snow castle, a scene we'll be looking at more closely shortly. It's become evident over the course of the books that Lysa is fairly unhinged, though we do gain some sympathy for her when we see how pathetically happy her marriage to Littlefinger makes her, especially with our knowledge of Peter's attitude and motivations. Yeah, Lysa tells Sansa about Littlefinger. He is mine. They tried to take him away from me. My lord father, my husband, your mother, Catelyn most of all. She liked to kiss my Peter too. Oh yes, she did. All those years in Riverrun, she played with Peter as if he were a little toy. She teased him with smiles and soft words and wanton looks and made his nights a torment. 
And when Sansa denies that this could be true, Lysa continues to tell her story, and her ranting holds a truth that reveals a lot about Peter Baelish. Here's the complete passage. How would you know? Were you there? Did you come with Lord Bracken and Lord Blackwood the time they visited to lay their feud before my father? Lord Bracken's singer played for us, and Catelyn danced six dances with Peter that night. Six, I counted. When the lords began to argue, my father took them up to his audience chamber, so there was no one to stop us drinking. Edmure got drunk, young as he was, and Peter tried to kiss your mother, only she pushed him away. She laughed at him. He looked so wounded I thought my heart would burst, and afterward he drank until he passed out at the table. Uncle Brynden carried him up to bed before my father could find him like that. That was the night I stole up to his bed to give him comfort. I bled, but it was the sweetest hurt. He told me he loved me then, but he called me Cat just before he fell back to sleep. Even so, I stayed with him until the sky began to lighten. Your mother did not deserve him. She would not even give him her favor to wear when he fought Brandon Stark. I would have given him my favor. I gave him everything. He's mine now, not Catelyn's and not yours. So there's the explanation for Littlefinger's tales about taking Catelyn's maidenhead. He was drunk and Liza comforted him, but he mistook her for Catelyn. And in reply to a fan question about whether the state Baelish was in caused him to believe that he actually slept with Catelyn, George has actually confirmed this, saying, I think that's quite likely, yes. So there's a bit of pathos and tragedy in Peter Baelish there. He's gone through his entire life actually believing this misconception that he had sex with Catelyn. And as we'll see, this delusion is his primary motivator in many respects, probably leading to his duel with Brandon Stark and indirectly to his banishment from Riverrun, as well as his role in Ned's death, Sansa's captivity in the Vale, and probably even Lysa's fate. And in light of the knowledge that Peter actually believed in this tale he was spreading, we can go back and evaluate something from early in A Game of Thrones. Right, it's an apparently throwaway comment from Kat to Sir Roderick when she's telling him about her early relationship with Baelish and the duel with Brandon. She tells him, He wrote to me at Riverrun after Brandon was killed, but I burned the letter unread. By then, I knew that Ned would marry me in his brother's place. And so, we'd like to suggest that the letter was a marriage proposal. Given Peter's beliefs about his relations with Kat, his obvious continued feelings for her, and Brandon's death, it seems like a reasonable assumption. And think about the implications of that unopened letter. Could Kat have mitigated what we think became for Baelish a consuming hatred of the Starks if she'd only just read it? Well, anything is possible, and such a tragic misunderstanding, followed by miscommunication, would certainly be in keeping with George's style. But what about Littlefinger's claim to have had both the sisters' maidenheads? For that, we need look no farther than Kat's recollection of the duel and its aftermath. A fortnight passed before Littlefinger was strong enough to leave Riverrun, but her lord father forbade her to visit him in the tower where he lay abed. Lysa helped their maester nurse him. She had been softer and shyer in those days. So it seems very likely that Lysa 
comforted Peter again, only this time injured in body and soul, rejected by the only girl he wanted, and devastated by the turn things had taken. He knew what he was doing and knowingly took his solace in Liza's arms. And it seems clear that they were discovered, because from the memories of both Kat and Liza, Peter was moved suddenly and decisively from Riverrun back to the Fingers. Here's Kat's recollection. As soon as he was strong enough to be moved, Lord Hostetully sent Peter Baelish away in a closed litter to finish his healing on the Fingers, upon the windswept jut of rock where he'd been born. And then Liza adds more details when she's spilling her secrets to Sansa at the end of Storm. How would you like to spend your life on that bleak shore, surrounded by slatterns and sheep pellets? That was what my father meant for Peter. Everyone thought it was because of that stupid duel with Brandon Stark, but that wasn't so. Father said I ought to thank the gods that so great a lord as John Aaron was willing to take me soiled, but I knew it was only for the swords. I had to marry John, or my father would have turned me out as he did his brother. And so now we come to the heart of Peter Baelish's banishment from Riverrun. Not simply because he set his sights on Cat and challenged her betrothed to a duel out of boyish passion, but rather because he was caught sleeping with the other daughter of the house. And Liza goes on to shed more light on things, particularly a recurring theme from Kat's final interactions with her father in Clash and Storm. She tells Sansa, We made a baby together, a precious little baby. When they stole him from me, I made a promise to myself that I would never let it happen again. John wished to send my sweet Robert to Dragonstone, and that sot of a king would have given him to Cersei Lannister. But I never let them. No more than I'll let you steal my Peter Littlefinger. Do you hear me, Elaine, or Sansa, or whatever you call yourself? Do you hear what I'm telling you? Okay, so this highlights that Lysa has become quite deranged, and that a large part of it is paranoia over losing Sweet Robin. But that baby that she and Littlefinger made together has been mentioned before by her father to Cat as he rambles incoherently on his deathbed at Riverrun. You'll have others, sweet babes and trueborn. Be a good wife and the gods will bless you, sons, trueborn sons. And paired with his frequent muttering of the word tansy and things like, Forgive me, the blood, oh please, Tansy. It's clear to Kat that her father is tormented by something. She just can't put all the pieces together. But Lysa again fills in the details in that final scene in Storm when she tells Littlefinger, I have always loved you. I've proved it, haven't I? I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son too. But they murdered him with moon tea, with tansy and mint and wormwood, a spoon of honey and a drop of pennyroyal. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. So there it is, a recipe for moon tea, that well-known morning-after herbal tincture used by women in Westeros to avoid pregnancy. 
Herbs like tansy, wormwood, and pennyroyal are all well known for having abortifacient properties, and such a concoction could probably be expected to be effective even beyond the first days of conception. It seems Lord Hoster was tormented by the steps he took to preserve his daughter's honor and value as a marriage asset. Perhaps late in his life, he began to see the effect that these events and her marriage to John Aaron had on her, maybe even wondering if that forced herbal treatment had been the cause of her later fertility issues. Lord Hoster was definitely troubled and appeared to be seeking forgiveness. And now we're going to stay with that final scene in Storm, because it reveals a lot about the Peter, Liza and Cat triangle, among other things. When Liza begins to spill secrets, Littlefinger warns her, We don't want Elaine to know more than she should, do we? Or Marillion? But she pays no heed. She goes on to declare, Cat never gave you anything. So perhaps a little hint at the truth of the matter, which Peter apparently doesn't know. And her declarations of love become more hysterical and sadly more pathetic, not to mention revealing, when she continues, Catelyn kissed you in the godswood, but she never meant it. She never wanted you. Why did you love her best? It was me. It was always me. Oh, when Littlefinger tries to soothe her, telling her there's no need for tears, Her response is a virtual confession. Tears, 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 she sobbed hysterically. No need for tears. But that's not what you said in King's Landing. You told me to put the tears in John's wine, and I did. For Robert and for us. And I wrote Catelyn and told her the Lannisters had killed my lord husband, just as you said. That was so clever. You were always so clever. I told father that. I said, Peter's so clever. He'll rise high. He will. He will. And he's sweet and gentle. And I have his little baby in my belly. So a revelation there about the plot to kill John Arryn and to involve the Starks. Unfortunately for Littlefinger, at this time Sansa, like her aunt, doesn't seem to grasp the implications of it all although in retrospect, she may well begin to. And we'll talk more about some of these things in the upcoming segments, but for now, we'll focus on the fact that Liza's hysteria and jealousy and her obvious growing madness probably made what happened next inevitable. Because only moments before, Littlefinger had warned Sliza about saying too much in the presence of Sansa and Marillion, we think Liza's continued ranting probably sealed her own fate here, not to mention Marillion's. Yeah, Littlefinger turns on the charm and gets Liza to release Sansa. Then he kisses his wife and delivers one of the best two-line sentences in fiction. Only cat. And we'll end this segment now with a reading of that chilling moment that brought an end to Peter Baelish's long and twisted relationship with Lysa once and for all as he declared his love for Catelyn Tully in the most emphatic and sinister of ways. Cat never gave you anything! It was me who got you your first post, who made John bring you to court so we could be close to one another. You promised me you would never forget that. Nor have I. 
We're together, just as you always wanted, just as we always planned. Just let go of Sansa's hair. I won't! I saw you kissing in the snow. She's just like her mother. Catelyn kissed you in the godswood, but she never meant it. She never wanted you. Why did you love her best? It was me. It was always me. I know, love. And I am here. All you need to do is take my hand. Come on. There's no cause for all these tears. Tears! 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 No need for tears. But that's not what you said in King's Landing. You told me to put the tears in John's wine. And I did! For Robert and for us! And I wrote Catelyn and told her the Lannisters had killed my lord husband. Just as you said. That was so clever. You were always clever. I told father that. I said, Peter's so clever. He'll rise high. He will. He will. And he's sweet and gentle. And I have his little baby in my belly. Oh, why did you kiss her? Why? We're together now. We're together after so long. So very long. Why would you want to kiss her? Liza. After all the storms we've suffered, you should trust me better. I swear, I shall never leave your side again, for as long as we both shall live. Truly? Oh, truly? Truly. Now, unhand the girl and come and give me a kiss. Liza threw herself into Littlefinger's arms, sobbing. As they hugged, Sansa crawled from the moon door on hands and knees and wrapped her arms around the nearest pillar. She could feel her heart pounding. There was snow in her hair and her right shoe was missing. It must have fallen. She shuddered and hugged the pillar tighter. Littlefinger let Lysa sob against his chest for a moment, then put his hands on her arms and kissed her lightly. My sweet, silly, jealous wife... I've only loved one woman, I promise you. Only one? Oh, Peter, do you swear it? Only one? Only cat. He gave her a short, sharp shove. Lysa stumbled backward, her feet slipping on the wet marble. And then she was gone. Okay, so a truly shocking scene there, as Peter Baelish shoves his wife to her death through the moon door. A moment of poetic justice that none would applaud more than Tyrion Lannister. And while Liza is hardly a stereotypical villain in the story, and we actually found a lot of pathos in her... We have to acknowledge that that scene, which ended A Storm of Swords, aside from the epilogue, is truly a fan favourite. And we want to take a moment now to contemplate how Sansa must have felt in the aftermath of Lysa's death. Moments before the fatal shove, Baelish had warned Lysa about saying too much in front of Sansa and Marillion. And of course, Marillion was imprisoned and accused of being the culprit in Lysa's death. Early in A Feast for Crows, Sansa's terror at the prospect of Marillion talking to Lord Nestor is evident. Well, Littlefinger encourages her to stick with the tale, no matter what Marillion says, saying that Lord Nestor will believe them because it will profit him. 
He reminds Sansa that he saved her from suffering Lysa's fate and leaves the threat that she may yet exit the Eyrie by the moon door hanging between them as he points out what might happen if she fails to convince Lord Nestor. So in this whole exchange, Sansa's fear and inner turmoil are evident. She's clinging to her Stark identity internally, but is subject to so much external manipulation that she ends up agreeing to take part in the deception, thinking, how could she doubt it? He had saved her. Yes, she reminds herself that Peter also rescued her from King's Landing and brought her to the Vale and that Marillion had tried to rape her. So, after some justification, we see the beginning of Elaine's role as co-conspirator with her father in manipulating the politics of the Vale. Well, there's obviously some self-preservation at work there, as there has been since she first arrived at Baelish's holding on the Fingers. Following their departure from King's Landing, Littlefinger had told her that they were going home. Their arrival at his own childhood home came as a surprise to Sansa, but she managed to hide her dismay and her surprise at learning of her rescuer's upcoming marriage to her Aunt Lysa. Sansa's well-known armor of courtesy actually allowed her to absorb a considerable amount of manipulation on the part of Peter Baelish. And it's in Littlefinger's Hall that Sansa hears more about the Game of Thrones. With Baelish using words like game, pieces and player, a chess analogy comes to the reader quite easily. We want to point out that when a pawn, the weakest piece on the board, reaches the 8th rank, it may be promoted to queen, the most powerful piece on the board. Since we can't forget that George was at one time quite a serious chess player, we'll definitely be keeping that in mind as we continue our analysis of Peter's relationship with Santa Stark and consider possibilities for outcomes. For now, here's Peter's lesson to Sansa on players and pieces. You must miss your father terribly, I know. Lord Eddard was a brave man, honest and loyal, but quite a hopeless player. In King's Landing, there are two sorts of people, the players and the pieces. And I was a piece? She dreaded the answer. Yes, but don't let that trouble you. You're still half a child. Every man's a piece to start with, and every maid as well. Even some who think they are players. Cersei, for one. She thinks herself sly, but in truth she is utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own, and it will soon desert her. I pity her then. She wants power, but has no notion what to do with it when she gets it. Everyone wants something, Elaine. And when you know what a man wants, you know who he is and how to move him. Okay, so Peter Baelish there with a teachable moment for his young charge, Sansa Stark. It's widely accepted in the fandom that Littlefinger is schooling Sansa on the Game of Thrones so that she might play the game at his side. 
His interactions with her after he spirits her away to the Vale are frequently in the nature of mentor to mentee, with a number of confidences being made that seem designed to bring her into the fold of his conspiracies. That's right. As we mentioned in our last episode, he gives her the background of some of his plots that led to her escape and schools are on deception and manipulation. We've also seen how later, in the veil after Liza's death, he really took her into his confidence in earnest. She knew the truth of her aunt's death, and helped Baelish pass off the tale that the bard Marillion was responsible. In the course of this deception, she also learned the truth of his manipulation of the Lord's declarant, and his relationship with Sir Lynn Corbray, and even took the very strong hint that her cousin is being dosed with dangerous drugs and is destined for death. Yeah, so let's take a close look at Littlefinger's relationship with Sansa, and by extension, his daughter Elaine. We'll also take this opportunity to have an in-depth look at the political situation in the Vale, all in preparation for our final segment considering what's in store for Peter Baelish in the future. In the course of all that, we'll be discussing the Elaine gift chapter from Winds of Winter, so heads up, from here on in, there be spoilers. Okay, so as we've mentioned, Peter Baelish shows a bizarre interest in Sansa almost right from the start. From commenting about her resemblance to Cat, to giving her advice about life, as in, life is not a song, sweetling. And, as we learn from Cersei in Dance, even offering to marry her in the aftermath of Ned's arrest. His interest is at once creepy and selfish, while apparently rooted in the, to quote Cat, real and pure youthful passion he had for her mother. So we're going to look at how he developed his relationship with Sansa, what his goals are specific to that relationship, and the progress towards those goals by the opening pages of The Winds of Winter. Littlefinger is faced with a number of challenges to earning Sansa's trust, namely that she's so scarred by her experiences as a hostage that trust doesn't come easily. He has to get beneath that armor she's developed, so he sets out to manipulate her and exploit her weaknesses and her natural tendencies. Sansa demonstrated her love of song early on to Baelish when he talked to her about her father's decision to send Beric to hunt Gregor rather than Loras. And as we mentioned, it's very likely that he capitalized on those natural romantic tendencies when he recruited Sir Dantos as an agent. Ultimately, Littlefinger needs to set himself up as Sansa's hero and neutralize any obstacles to him being that hero. So we see Dantos diverting her from the Tyrell plot and later Baelish's own subtle distancing of Tyrion, who had at least been kind to her, using disparaging remarks and disturbing half-truths. When Dantos's role in Sansa's flight was complete and the man she thought was her Florian was summarily executed before Sansa's eyes, her fears and despair are evident when she thinks... Had she escaped the Lannisters to tumble into worse? Yeah, but Littlefinger seized the opportunity to deliver a valuable lesson. Here's the passage. My lady, Littlefinger murmured, your grief is wasted on such a man as that. He was a sot and no man's friend. But he saved me. He sold you for a promise of ten thousand dragons. Your disappearance will make them suspect you in Joffrey's death. The gold cloaks will hunt and the eunuch will jingle his purse. 
Dantos. Well, you heard him. He sold you for gold, and when he'd drunk it up, he would have sold you again. A bag of dragons buys a man's silence for a while, but a well-placed quarrel buys it forever. He smiled sadly. All he did, he did at my behest. I dared not befriend you openly. When I heard how you saved his life at Joff's tourney, I knew he would be the perfect cat's paw. Sansa felt sick. He said he was my Florian. Do you perchance recall what I said to you that day your father sat the Iron Throne? The moment came back to her vividly. You told me that life is not a song, that I would learn that one day to my sorrow. She felt tears in her eyes, but whether she wept for Sir Dantos Hollard, for Joff, for Tyrion, or for herself, Sansa could not say. Is it all lies, forever and ever, everyone and everything? Almost everyone. Save you and I, of course, he smiled. Come to the Godswood tonight if you want to go home. And in the midst of a brutal lesson, that trust should not be given even to those who appear to be friends, Littlefinger brilliantly establishes himself in the role of her sole saviour and implies that he can be trusted, even if no one else can. So, as Sansa becomes Elaine, we see the process of neutralising her innate compassion and honour by making her whole life a lie and her very existence hinge upon that lie. In a sense, Baelish capitalizes upon Sansa's stark identity, something we'll be discussing in our next segment, by isolating her and establishing himself as her sole protector. But the reality of being Sansa Stark means there's a sinister undertone to being under his protection, because while Sansa remains hunted and at risk, Littlefinger has the power to unsave her. And Baelish also further neutralizes Sansa's stark identity by emphasizing his longtime love for Cat while subtly cutting down Ned. As we heard in the reading we opened with, he was brave but hopeless. At the same time, he further establishes himself as someone to be trusted with remarks like, Trust no one. I once told Eddard Stark, but he would not listen. He leaves out the critical detail that he himself was the one not to be trusted there, while insinuating to Sansa that her father should have trusted him, and perhaps even hinting that he could have saved Ned. And while Littlefinger delivers these confusing messages about his devotion to Catelyn and his views on her father, we also encounter a combination of sexual subtext and overt advances directed at Sansa. From comments like, You have your mother's eyes, honest eyes and innocent, blue as a sunlit sea. When you're a little older, many a man will drown in those eyes. Which clearly confuses Sansa. To those kisses in the snow castle and later at the gates of the moon, it's made very clear that Baelish's interest in Sansa is not at all fatherly. Yeah, but Sansa does a good job of actually using her role as Elaine as a shield against these advances. Although, at the same time, her confusion is obvious, and she never entirely rejects them. Littlefinger continues to manipulate Sansa's fears and isolates her. But as she becomes Elaine, the question becomes, how much is Littlefinger underestimating her? How much does he actually trust her, and how well is she learning her lessons? This passage illustrates just that. Can you do that? Can you be my daughter in your heart? 
I do not know, my lord, she almost said, but that was not what he wanted to hear. Lies and arbor gold, she thought. I am Elaine, father. Who else would I be? Hmm. So that last bit said aloud, while the part about lies and arbor gold, his very own lesson, is her own internal monologue. It's easy to see that along the way, she may become his weakness. If his trust in her reaches a level where she knows too much, Sansa might become a liability rather than an asset. Remember, too, that he wants her to want him. The pain of young Peter's disillusionment, looked down upon by the nobility he lived and worked with, and even as high as he rose as master of coin, still not being worthy of either Sansa Stark or Liza Aaron, has made his gambit to seize Sansa and make a partner of her a very dangerous game, because therein lies the trap. That's right. His principal piece of advice in the passage we open with, when you know what a man wants, you know who he is and how to move him, could as easily work against Baelish as in his favour. And there's a real danger of Sansa putting together the pieces she's collected, from Liza's confession to the veil politics, the treatment of Sweet Robin, and what happened at the Purple Wedding. And speaking of which... Let's not forget, she apparently still has that deadly amethyst hairnet. And there's a possibility we may see the catsport dagger again, the full story of which could be very damaging to Littlefinger. Well, if Sansa learns the truth of Ned's death and Jane Poole's fate, her reaction could cause his entire game to collapse like a house of cards. And these dangers seem to be increasing as she grows in subtlety under his tutelage, as indicated by this passage concerning the tale they would tell Nestor Royce about Lysa's death. We shall serve him lies and arbor gold, and he'll drink them down and ask for more, I promise you. He's serving me lies as well, Sansa realized. They were comforting lies, though, and kindly meant, if only she believed them. The things her aunt had said just before she fell had troubled Sansa greatly. And speaking of Sansa's increased perception, we gain an interesting insight into Littlefinger's dual nature through her POV. While this would probably come as no surprise to those who had observed him in King's Landing, it's clearly defined in this passage, which highlights Sansa's lack of trust in her patron as late as A Feast for Crows. Sometimes it seemed to her that the Lord Protector was two people as well. He was Peter, her protector, warm and funny and gentle. But he was also Littlefinger, the Lord she'd known at King's Landing, smiling slyly and stroking his beard as he whispered in Queen Cersei's ear. And Littlefinger was no friend of hers. When Joff had her beaten, the imp defended her, not Littlefinger. When the mob sought to rape her, the hound carried her to safety, not Littlefinger. When the Lannisters wed her to Tyrion against her will, Sir Garland the Gallant gave her comfort, not Littlefinger. Littlefinger never lifted so much as his little finger for her, except to get me out. Littlefinger was only a mask he had to wear. Only sometime, Sansa found it hard to tell where the man ended and the mask began. So we see quite a bit of Sansa's conflict there. 
She sees clearly that Littlefinger did nothing to save her from the increasing sexual menace she found herself under in King's Landing, and she identifies Tyrion, Sander, and Garland Tyrell as the ones who acted with kindness and protectiveness towards her. But there's a niggling doubt about Peter, who ultimately saved her, and this doubt about his motives may introduce a rare glimpse of something in Baelish's motivations, something perhaps deserving of empathy. Okay, and we'll get back to that theme in our next segment. Let's move on now to the politics of the veil. In order to gain Nestor Royce's support in advance of his meeting with the Lord's declarant, Littlefinger gave him the Gates of the Moon, historically an Arryn holding that Nestor had previously only held as steward of the veil. As head of the junior branch of House Royce, Nestor might have something of an inferiority complex, which Littlefinger uses to his advantage in the matters of Marillion and the Lord's Declarant, teaching Sansa a valuable lesson in exploitation. The following passage illustrates not only Sansa's learning curve, but introduces an interesting parallel to Ned Stark and emphasises the subtle threat that Baelish exercises in that marginalisation of Sansa in favour of Elaine. Do you understand what happened here, Elaine? Sansa hesitated. You gave Lord Nestor the gates of the moon to be certain of his support. I did, Peter admitted. Our rock is a Royce, but the lies I served him were sweeter than the truth. Men of honor will do things for their children that they would never consider doing for themselves. It was clever of you to see it, though no more than I'd expect from mine own daughter. Thank you. She felt absurdly proud for puzzling it out, but confused as well. I'm not, though, your daughter. Not truly, I mean. I pretend to be Elaine, but, you know... Littlefinger put a finger to her lips. I know what I know, and so do you. Some things are best left unsaid, sweetling. Do you want more blood on your pretty little hands, my darling? Marillion's face seemed to float before her. Behind him, she could see Sir Dantos. No, Sansa said, please. I'm tempted to say this is no game we play, daughter. But of course it is. The Game of Thrones. I never asked to play. The game was too dangerous. One slip, and I am dead. Okay, so the threat should be evident there. Just as part of Sansa finds the courage to protest, if only in private, that she's not really Elaine, Littlefinger introduces fear and guilt into the equation. She still feels guilt over her role in Marillion's death and Dantos's too, and she feels fear that she might have to participate in something like that again. The comment about what men of honour will do for their children could just as well be about Ned, although Sansa doesn't know it. And continuing with the subtle assumption of both Ned's role and life lessons, we later see an echo of one of Ned's very first examples from Game being espoused to Elaine by her father. Her father said there was no shame in being afraid, only in showing your fear. All men live with fear, he said. Elaine was not certain she believed that. Nothing frightened Peter Baelish. He only said that to make me brave. She would need to be brave down below, where the chance of being unmasked was so much greater. 
Peter's friends at court had sent him word that the Queen had men out looking for the imp and Sansa Stark. It will mean my head if I am found, she reminded herself as she descended a flight of icy stone steps. I must be Elaine all the time, inside and out. So compare that first part to Ned's lesson when Bran asks, Can a man be brave when he's afraid? And it's probably no accident that this is also in a passage that evokes fear of being Sansa Stark and a resolution to truly be Elaine. These examples aren't the first time George has made a subtle triangle of Ned, Littlefinger, and Sansa. When Baelish brought Ned to Chitaya's to meet Cat, he escorted him along a deserted corridor of empty suits of armor and down the face of a rocky bluff the very same route Sansa later fled with Sir Dantos after the Purple Wedding. By placing himself in the role of father and continuing to subtly challenge Ned's wisdom and even assuming some of the lessons Ned might have taught her for himself, while at the same time emphasising the danger she faces for being Sansa Stark and thereby also emphasising Ned's failure to protect her, Littlefinger is making the loss of her stark identity more palatable and highlighting his own role as her new and more successful protector. Well, the reader, and hopefully Sansa as well, ultimately can't help but notice that Peter Baelish, who never does his own dirty work, as the execution of Dantos Hollard showed, couldn't be any less like Ned Stark, whose own philosophy, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword, seems rooted in his identity as a Northman. But Littlefinger is a master manipulator and in the short term seems successful in establishing himself as a surrogate father figure. But speaking of Sansa's stark identity, there's good reason to believe that at least a couple of key players in the Vale may suspect who Elaine Stone really is. Yeah, when Bronze Yon Royce comes to parley with Lord Baelish, Sansa recalls his one-time visit to Winterfell and thinks, he will know me, how could he not? And indeed, when they come face to face, he says, do I know you, girl? It's Nestor Royce who diverts his cousin's attention by identifying her as Littlefinger's natural daughter, which is interesting in light of his daughter, Miranda's first meeting with Elaine. Miranda Royce, with her gossipy manner, seems very shrewd, and in the course of updating Elaine on the news of the kingdom, she lets fall a seemingly throwaway detail. The Night's Watch has a boy commander, some bastard son of Eddard Stark's. And Sansa's response is a stumble that reveals an unlikely knowledge of the North and possibly that Elaine is hiding some details about her background. Jon Snow, she blurted out, surprised. And while Miranda is quite casual about the exchange, there's something significant there. Some knowing that is betrayed by the manner in which she continues asking offhand but probing questions of Elaine. So, many have wondered if the Royces are aware of Elaine's true identity. If not the Runestone branch, then at least the Gates of the Moon branch, who could in fact be hiding something behind their apparent support of the Lord Protector. And then there's Lady Anya Wainwood. When the Lord's declarants come to the Eyrie to meet with Lord Baelish, she defends Elaine from Lynn Corbury's coarse remarks, saying... 
The girl is young and gently bred, and has suffered enough horrors. Mind your tongue, sir. This seems somewhat of an odd thing to say about a bastard girl who recently arrived from Bravos. But things get even stranger with Lady Wainwood near the end of Feast, when we learn about Elaine's betrothal to young Harold Harding. So what on earth induced Lady Anya to agree to marry her precious cousin, Harry the heir, to Elaine Stone? We're told that the dower offered for Sansa was large, even larger than the one that Lionel Corbray just collected. But we learn that the nobly born Miranda Royce wasn't good enough for him. So how are we to accept that Peter Baelish's bastard daughter is, no matter how large her dowry? Lilfinger bought up her debt, we're told, but Lady Anya risks the anger of Bronzion Royce by spurning his daughter, who was once considered a suitable match for Harry, in favour of Elaine. All in all, it seems possible that Littlefinger told her the truth of Sansa's identity, and that the dower is Winterfell. As we consider the implications of this, let's quickly review the relationship between the Starks and the cousins in the Vale that Catelyn told Rob about in Storm. The sister of Ned's grandfather, Edwile Stark, married the younger son of Raymar Royce of the junior branch of the house. Her daughters, who married the Vale lordlings from House Wainwood, Corbray and Templeton, were Rickard's first cousins. So their children would be Eddard's second cousins. And because of the way lordling is used elsewhere in the story, by others of her social class, we conclude that when Kat mentions Vale lordlings, she spoke of the young heirs to those houses, which would make the current crop of Wainwoods, Corbrays and Templetons cousins to the Starks. In which case... Lady Anya could well be aware of the twist of fate that might make either herself or her sons the heirs to Sansa Stark, whose true-born brothers are all thought to be dead. And a Stark connection for the Wainwoods got some support in the Elaine spoiler chapter when Miranda Royce said to Sansa, The first Lady Wainwood must have been a mare, I think. How else to explain why all the Wainwood men are horse-faced? So fans see a reference there in the long-faced Stark look, typified by Aya Horseface, who of course has a father's look. We think it's a pretty good connection. But how much Lady Anya knows, and whether it's because Littlefinger told her, or because of a larger conspiracy among the Vale Lords, is a valid question. Because we suspect that Lady Anya, or one of her sons, is the Stark heir in the Vale, we see a number of possibilities around her involvement, which run the gamut from benevolent to nefarious. Right, and when we talk about the current politics of the Vale, it's useful to review what we know about their recent history. It's no accident that the Lord's Declarant include the Lords who were most vocal in their desire to support Rob Stark, Royce, Wainwood, Belmore, Templeton, Redfort, and Hunter. House Redfort and Royce share first men origins with the North, while Bronze Yone has a history of personal friendship with Ned, and there are those Wainwood and Templeton kinships to consider. Vague as Catelyn may have been to Rob, Ned grew up in the Vale, and we can be certain that he knew exactly which families there were kin to him. 
And on the other side, we know that the Graftons and the Corbrays both initially fought for the Targaryens during Robert's Rebellion. Both families now find themselves aligned with Littlefinger. We don't know much about the Waxleys or the Lindeleys, who are also aligned with Littlefinger, but based on their locations near Gulltown and Hart's home respectively, we might speculate they were also Targaryen loyalists at the outset of the rebellion. And of course, the Lord's Declarant all seem to have supported Lord Arryn and Robert Baratheon. One thing we shouldn't forget is that any Vale conspiracy involving the Lord's Declarant now most likely predates Littlefinger's marriage to Lysa and Sansa's arrival. While Littlefinger has been laying his own groundwork for years, the Lord's Declarant spent their time in Game of Thrones through Storm courting Lysa and lobbying her to join the Stark cause. The question that really needs to be answered is, what was their goal in joining the Starks in the first place? And we definitely think that blood ties, bonds of friendship from Ned's years in the Vale, the recent history of alliances formed during Robert's Rebellion, and possibly even a First Men connection, could all be reasons for the Lord's declarant supporting the Stark cause. The apparent deaths of all of Lord Eddard's sons may have even kindled some hope of a claim among the Stark relations. And whether the Lord's declarant know it or not, Littlefinger, with his knowledge that Arya Bolton is a fake, has gained control of a piece that he thinks is the key to Winterfell. Not only does Sansa stand to inherit after her brother's deaths, but she is in a unique position to identify Jane Poole as an imposter, which would cut the legs out from under the Bolton claim. But, as far as we know, Littlefinger knows nothing about Bran and Rickon's survival or Jon Snow's apparent claim to Winterfell via Rob's will. And we think it's inevitable those details will surface in the Winds of Winter and cause him a big pain in the planner. So, atmospheric and remote as it is, the gothic setting of the Vale inspires a sense of mystery. That the motivations of its principal citizens remain shrouded in secrecy only adds to the suspense. In terms of characters and setting, the Vale of Arryn is ripe for a conspiracy plot. Whether the Lords declare it are aware of the Jon Snow factor, as Miranda Royce's probing might indicate, or whether they potentially had their sights set on Winterfell for one of their own, we aren't alone in predicting that their untested army, estimated to be at least 20,000 strong, will play a significant role in the Winds of Winter. But who will be in control of that army? After his meeting with the Lords Declaren in Feast, Littlefinger told Elaine what he expected to happen in the year they had granted him to remain Robert's protector. Redfort and Wainwood are old. One or both of them may die. Gilwood Hunter will be murdered by his brothers, most likely by young Harlan, who arranged Lord Eon's death. In for a penny, in for a stag, I always say. Belmore is corrupt and can be bought. Templeton, I shall befriend. Bronzion Royce will continue to be hostile, I fear, but so long as he stands alone, he's not much of a threat. And of course, that's the same occasion when Littlefinger reveals that Sir Lynn Corbray is in his employ to play the role of implacable enemy. 
We should mention that in the Elaine Wins a Winter chapter, there's a hint that Lynn's hatred may not be entirely feigned, since Littlefinger's role in arranging his older brother's new marriage and the resulting pregnancy has left Lynn bumped down the line of succession. At any rate, by the time Elaine and Robert retreat to the Gates of the Moon at the end of Feast, it appears that not only has Littlefinger bought Lionel Corbray with that well-dowered Gulltown bride, but has also managed to befriend Simon Templeton and Anya Wainwood as well. And of course, we find out what's behind Lady Wainwood's show of friendship when we learn about the betrothal of Elaine to Harry the heir. Okay, and so a final thing to consider before we move on are the Lord Protector's intentions towards his stepson, Robert Arryn. He was granted a year by the Lord's declarant to set things to rights in the Vale, although it's unclear exactly what bearing that directive has upon Sweet Robin's welfare. At the end of Feast, it's clear that the little lord is being dosed with dangerous levels of the herb sweet sleep. We learn about its properties in Feast when Aya is undergoing her tutelage of poisonings in the House of Black and White, and the wave tells her, Sweet sleep is the gentlest of poisons. A few grains will slow a pounding heart and stop a hand from shaking, and make a man feel calm and strong. A pinch will grant a night of deep and dreamless sleep. Three pinches will produce that sleep that does not end. And near the end of Feast, when Elaine orders her cousin to be kept well sedated for the journey down the mountain with more sweet milk, which is a concoction made with sweet sleep, Maester Coleman protests, This must be the last for half a year or longer. And it's a measure of how much Sansa has absorbed the lessons of Peter Baelish and the identity of Elaine Stone when she thinks Coleman only wanted the best for his charge, but what was best for Robert the boy and what was best for Lord Arryn were not always the same. Peter had said as much, and it was true. Maester Coleman cares only for the boy, though. Father and I have larger concerns. Well, by the Winds of Winter chapter, it appears that Elaine has not only acknowledged to herself that her cousin may not live to manhood, but that Coleman's advice has gone unheeded. As Elaine dances her first dance with Harry Harding, she sees Sweet Robin watching her and thinks, Please, don't let him start to twitch and shake. Not here. Not now. Maester Coleman would have made certain that he drank a strong dose of sweet milk before the feast, but even so... So the outlook is perhaps grim for the young Lord of the Vale, as indicated by this passage. Our poor brave sweet Robin is such a sickly boy, it is only a matter of time. When Robert dies, Harry the heir becomes Lord Harold, defender of the Vale and Lord of the Eyrie. And with... A virile young heir waiting in the wings, whose betrothal to a young woman who will turn out to have a claim to Winterfell and the North might shortly be public knowledge. We wonder just who will mourn the poor young lord should his admittedly frail body finally appear to succumb to one of those fits he's well known for. Well, whatever happens to Sweet Robin, we get further strong hints in that Elaine chapter that, as usual, Baelish is playing for the long game. 
from commanding lords Belmore and Grafton to stockpile grain because winter is coming, to reminding Elaine bringing Harry here was the first step in our plan, but now we need to keep him and only you can do that. We also see several examples of how he's continuing to isolate Bronzion, most significantly by forcing him to allow Harold Harding to attend the tournament at the Gates of the Moon. So coming up next, we'll be looking at our ideas for the endgame of Peter Baelish and analyzing what we think are some hints as to what his fate will be, both of which we see as closely tied to Sansa Stark. Tell me, child... Why would you have sent Sir Loras? Sansa had no choice but to explain about heroes and monsters. The king's counselor smiled. Well, those are not the reasons I'd have given, but... He had touched her cheek, his thumb lightly tracing the line of a cheekbone. Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. So, we mentioned in part one that the exchange we just heard about Sir Loras most likely indicated Baelish's willingness to sacrifice Sir Loras in an attempt to involve House Tyrell in the hostilities that led to the War of the Five Kings from the outset. In this segment, we're going to consider why it was so important to stir up those hostilities in the first place as we discuss those burning questions, what is Littlefinger's endgame, and what lies in store for him in this series. Yeah, and this is what everybody wants to know, isn't it? So we'll give it our best shot. Well, first of all, it's worth mentioning again that we think Littlefinger isn't omniscient and all-knowing, nowhere near up to the standard of Bloodraven in that respect. Whilst he might employ spies and have his little finger in many pies, Baelish is a self-confessed player of the Game of Thrones. He's not some all-knowing force of nature, and so there are limits to his schemes. But more importantly, he's a human being, and as such, has discernible human motives and flaws too. And what those motives are in the long term, as he builds for an endgame, is open for discussion. However, we're going to do our best to decipher things the way we see it. So first of all, we try to put a lot of emphasis on his backstory. We're sure we're told about this for a reason. It's obviously a large part of who he is, and we think that it drives a lot of his plots. Following the situation with Kat, Brandon, and Ned, Littlefinger must have been full of envy and hurt. It's pretty broadly telegraphed that he developed an obsession and felt resentments towards the Tullys even as a boy. Was all of this fueled by jealousy and the injustice of his low birth, which prevented him having a chance with the woman he loved? Could this have been a catalyst to Baelish's climb up society's ladder, using his wits and cunning? And if, as we've suggested, Baelish continued to love an idealized Catelyn Stark, perhaps he dreamed of taking Ned's place in Winterfell. Then, in the Game of Thrones, he met Sansa, and as we noted, behaved oddly towards her right from the start. Recall that he had this to say about Sansa. She reminds me of the mother, not the father. Look at her, the hair, the eyes. She's the very image of Cat at the same age. Mm, so we've suggested that Baelish's infatuation with Cat was transferred onto Sansa when he met her. Did Sansa, with her romantic and pliable nature, more closely resemble the ideal young Peter fell in love with than the grown-up Catelyn? 
Well, it's very possible, since even in her youth, Kat is portrayed as more dutiful than idealistic and ladylike. And let's not forget the sitch a little finger took on, the mockingbird. These are mimicking animals, and this could be a hint. Perhaps Baelish has wanted to be a great lord, or a Stark specifically, since Brandon and then Ned were matched with his love interest. And now fast forward to the current story, and there he is playing the Game of Thrones in the Vale, with Cat's daughter at his side. As we've just discussed, there is significant support for the North in the Vale, and blood connections as well. And what's more, there's a fresh army there. The Vale army have purposefully been kept from war by George. In our last segment, we raised the question of who would be in control of that army. And we think there's every chance that this army is going to one day facilitate the taking of Winterfell by Baelish and with Sansa as the vital Stark. Yeah, when the betrothal to Harry the Heir was first revealed to Sansa, Littlefinger was quite explicit about that. John Aaron's bannermen will never love me, nor our silly shaking Robert, but they will love their young falcon, and when they come together for his wedding, and you come out with your long auburn hair, clad in a maiden's cloak of white and grey with a dire wolf emblazoned on the back, why, every knight in the vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright. So those are your gifts from me, my sweet Sansa, Harry, the Eyrie, and Winterfell. And of course, there's the minor problem of Harold Harding to be disposed of. But since we've seen several young bridegrooms die before their time in the story so far, it's unlikely someone like Peter Baelish would consider that a major obstacle. In fact, a Franz Ferdinand-style assassination laid at the door of someone like, say, Ramsay Bolton, might do more for the cause than the simple, romantic presentation of Sansa Stark. Yeah, Baelish might have everything he could want in this scenario. He could be, in his mind, recreating the life Kat ended up sharing with Ned. He would have good relations with the Vale and the Riverlands, and could rule the North with Sansa by his side. As we've hinted, we wonder if this has been an obsessive fantasy of his for some time, as a reaction to what happened in his backstory. The injustice, jealousy, and inferiority he felt as a young boy being finally purged would make perfect sense as his goal for his own Game of Thrones. And it makes sense to us that a character who's ready to cause mass destruction in fact has a petty, selfish, and rather pathetic motive behind it all. Anyway, with the idea of Littlefinger and Sansa taking Winterfell, perhaps from the Boltons if they're still holding it, although there are other Stannis, Rickon and John shaped ideas that are floating around, we finally come to our ideas for his fate via an interpretation of a prophecy made in A Storm of Swords by the Ghost of Highheart. Yeah, here it is. It's one we've talked about before, but we think there's a chance it could be very important, so we've got more to say about it. The ghost says, I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs, and later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. Okay, so clearly Sansa at the purple wedding, with those deadly amethysts in her silver hairnet. And then Sansa again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. 
Now when we get to Feast, Sansa builds a snow winter fell and ends up pulling apart Sweet Robin's doll. Here's the passage. Look, here comes a giant to knock it down. Sweet Robin stood his doll in the snow and moved it jerkily. Tromp, tromp, I'm a giant, I'm a giant, he chanted. Ho, 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 open your gates or I'll mash them and smash them. Swinging the doll by the legs, he knocked the top off one of the gatehouse towers and then the other. It was more than Sansa could stand. Robert, stop that! Instead, he swung the doll again and a foot of wall exploded. She grabbed for his hand, but she caught the doll instead. There was a loud ripping sound as the thin cloth tore. Suddenly, she had the doll's head. Robert had the legs and body and the rag and sawdust stuffing was spilling in the snow. So, some people think this resolves the prophecy, with that castle built of snow and the clear reference to the headless doll as a giant. However, there's another school of thought that this is a red herring, and that Sansa might end up slaying Littlefinger at Winterfell. Yeah, the ghost of High Art's dreams, aside from this, all denotes the death of important characters. Renly, Balon, Catelyn, Robin Grey Wind, and then Joffrey. So there's cause to think the final one being a doll is a little underwhelming. Also, we learn in Storm that Baelish changed his sigil. It was originally the head of the Titan of Bravos, the Titan which Old Nan refers to as a giant. And note that the ghost seemed to use sigil-based symbolism to describe her dreams, such as Catelyn Tully being a fish. So, it's very suspicious to us that Baelish has this second sigil, rarely mentioned, and yet here's this connection being made between Sansa and a giant, and it would be so fitting if the ghost prophecy referred to something momentous in line with the deaths of Renly and Balon in the Red Wedding. And this is where the fandom reaches an impasse. Some think it's simply the doll, and some think it's the death of Baelish. The conversation stalls because it's really a matter of opinion, but we want to look at this from another angle, and consider Sansa Stark. As we've said, we think Sansa's and Baelish's arcs are tied closely together, so let's consider her now. Okay, Sansa's arc, in our opinion, is largely about the quest for Sansa to regain her Stark identity. Sansa as a Stark has faced an absolute onslaught through these books. She began as apparently the least Starkish of the family in some respects, seeming to share more in common with her southern mother and having all of these romantic southern ideals. But it was when her direwolf lady died that Sansa's identity as a Stark really became challenged. Yeah, now Arya has been clinging to her Stark identity, partially via her connection with Nymeria, yet Sansa lost Lady early on, and since then her identity has been continually challenged. She was basically a captive as a Lannister-in-waiting with Joffrey, then forced to marry Tyrion, and eventually she's left no choice but to become another person altogether in Elaine Stone, and the Snowcastle scene brilliantly summarized her yearning to be a Stark once more. And one could make a case that through all of her ordeals, she's shown on a deep level a closer affinity to her father than her mother. 
And since her flight from King's Landing, she's thought often of her true identity. But in the face of all the manipulation by Peter Baelish that we outlined in our last segment, how can Sansa really become a Stark again? Something we feel is essential for her arc to make sense. We think there's only one place she can truly become a Stark again, at Winterfell. And so we firmly believe that Winterfell is where her future lies, to resolve the thematics and dynamics present in her story. And what's more, there is one thing that Sansa could do at Winterfell that would be the ultimate and defining manoeuvre in becoming a true Stark once again. Yeah, in the very first Bran chapter, we see Stark Justice define the house as Ned beheads a lawbreaker. Stark justice isn't the act itself, but the fact that Ned carried out the sentence himself. This is what the Starks are all about. Given Littlefinger has helped to destroy her family, we think that Sansa administering Stark justice to Littlefinger in the Stark home would be the perfect apex to her arc and the climax that we're building towards. And remember that while Baelish is coaching Sansa in playing the Game of Thrones, He's also exposing himself to her potential power, as we've mentioned. There's a school of thought that Sansa's journey is going to be from pawn to player. And our friends at pawntoplayer.wordpress.com have amassed many quality essays on the subject. And so wouldn't it be so sweet and fitting in a storytelling sense if Baelish was toppled by his own pawn? Isn't that the direction we're going in with Baelish and Sansa? Is Baelish's great mistake to underestimate one of his pawns, the one that he thinks is incapable of causing him any trouble? We think so. And we think we really need a payoff in Sansa's arc. She can't be a helpless pawn forever. There has to be a moment of redefinition for her. And so we think the ghost of High Heart's dream makes so much sense as Sansa slaying Baelish at Winterfell to both of their arcs, their characters and thematics, and for a climactic moment that would serve the whole story. And thinking about the prophecy, it would be great writing and typical of George to spell out a major future event and then use a device to disguise the fact. If the Vale Snowcastle scene is indeed a red herring, or, to say it another way, another layer of foreshadowing. Right, and to support it actually being secondary foreshadowing, some time ago we found an interesting quote in one of Arya's chapters. When Arya approaches Bravos aboard the Titan's daughter and sees the Titan for the first time, she recalls how old Nan had told her the Titan was a giant as tall as a mountain. And once up close to it, she thinks he could step right over the walls of Winterfell. So there's Arya thinking about this giant stepping over the walls of Winterfell. Looking back at the Snowcastle scene, we found this. He stepped over both walls with a single long stride. So that's Peter Baelish, born with the Titan of Bravos, a giant as tall as a mountain as his sigil, stepping over the walls of Winterfell. So maybe some of you agree with what we're saying, and some of you don't. I think the fandom are quite split on this one. But let's suspend our disbelief for a moment. 
In order to explore this proposed Sansa slaying Littlefinger scenario, let's just run with it and see where it goes. First of all, Baelish's old sigil isn't just the Titan of Bravos, it's the Titan of Bravos's head. So we think there's good cause to wonder if Sansa's slaying would in fact be a beheading. And we feel that would actually lend more credence to poor Sweet Robin's beheaded doll being secondary foreshadowing. But as we said, it would have to be done at Winterfell. And more troublesome perhaps, she would have to do the deed herself for maximum thematic impact. So the question arises, how would Sansa behead Littlefinger? We can imagine she turns on him, and we've already suggested a number of scenarios that might make her do so. But how can she physically pull it off? Sansa's a gentle girl, and so swinging a sword might seem very unlikely. But there is one blade that she could not only wield, but would make thematic sense as well. Widow's Whale. Widow's Whale, made for Joffrey, who is not yet fully grown, is smaller than the counterpart Oathkeeper, and because it's made of Valyrian steel, it's very sharp, very light, probably just the right size for her to lift, and so it might be the only sword Sansa could decapitate someone with. And on top of that, Widow's Whale is made of Ned's ice, the ancestral Stark blade, and so would be thematically perfect in the execution of Baelish and the aforementioned notion of Sansa regaining her Stark identity literally in one fell swoop. Widow's Wail would be perfect for the job and the story, we think. So, if Baelish or Sansa happen to come in contact with Widow's Wail in the future story, keep an eye on Littlefinger's head. It might end up on a spike on the Winterfell walls, like the doll's head in Sansa's snow castle. And Widow's Whale would then have an important role in the story that's been lacking so far. And so how could Widow's Whale possibly come into their possession? Well, we're actually not sure where it is at the moment. It could be the Red Keep, in which case it would be very difficult to get hold of. However, we do have a theory that the sword might already be in Baelish's possession. Yes, so here's our crackpot on this. Widow's Whale was last seen with Joffrey on the day of his wedding. It hasn't been mentioned since that day, not once. Now, some people assume that it's now with Tommen. However, we wondered if it might have been smuggled out of King's Landing. In Storm, it's mentioned that Baelish is having tapestries shipped to him from King's Landing. There were many theories about what was on the tapestries and what importance their design might have. But in the Elaine sample chapter, the tapestries have arrived in the Vale and been gifted to Nestor Royce, and they seem to be simply mundane scenes. However, we wonder if the mystery isn't what was on those tapestries, but what was hidden inside them. They're the right shape to smuggle a sword, and in the chaos of Joffrey's death followed by Tywin's, we wonder if Littlefinger didn't have an associate put Widow's Whale inside the tapestries before they were sent on to him. It would be the perfect way to smuggle something out of King's Landing and would perhaps give Baelish some piece of regalia to help substantiate Sansa's identity. Anyway, that's our crackpot idea of how Widow's Whale could work its way into Sansa's hands and like we said, it's the perfect weapon to slay Littlefinger with. So what could make Sansa finally turn against him? What could happen to make her want him dead and to become a player herself, ousting her mentor? 
Well, we've mentioned a few things that Sansa knows that could become dangerous for Baelish, as well as things she could learn. Take Jane Poole, Sansa's childhood best friend. Memories of her are linked to Sansa's dreams of her once happy family and home. Jane was forced into prostitution by Baelish and became a pawn in his game and was sent to the psychotic Ramsay Bolton as a replacement for Arya and so is embroiled in the downfall of House Stark and a living testament to the cruelty of Littlefinger. If Sansa found out what happened to Jane, this could be a catalyst for an act of aggression on the part of Sansa. And we can't forget Baelish's role in the death of Ned Stark. This was the start of serious turmoil for the Stark family, and Baelish betrayed him. Again, we see potential for some real disasters brewing for Littlefinger if Sansa starts to put all the pieces together. We also wonder if it could turn out that Littlefinger had some part in the Red Wedding, remembering that Catelyn wasn't supposed to be killed, but kept hostage. There's no direct evidence for this yet, but if his endgame has been Winterfell all along, Robb Stark's death definitely benefited that, so it could turn out either a happy accident for him, or at some stage Littlefinger used the power of suggestion to put ideas into someone's head. Okay, so definitely enough cause for Sansa to turn on him. And since we mentioned that the knowledge that Arya Bolton is a fake might be critical to his plans... We definitely think she'll find out it was Baelish who sent Jane to Ramsay, whether by chance or design. George has confirmed that Sansa is a warg like her siblings. Could she actually be a skin changer and enter the body of a little bird and perhaps overhear something Baelish says? It might be fitting as she's been called little bird frequently. Well, with these crackpots and speculations aside, we'll summarise by saying that we don't think Peter Baelish is interested in the Iron Throne, but that his goal is a much more personal one, Winterfell. And we believe that one day Sansa will have Littlefinger's head on a spike, as foreshadowed by this line. A mad rage seized hold of her. She picked up a broken branch and smashed the torn doll's head down on top of it, then pushed it down atop the shattered gatehouse of her snow castle. And Littlefinger's reaction to that may be even more foreshadowing. When Littlefinger saw what she'd done, he laughed. If the tales be true, that's not the first giant to end up with his head on Winterfell's walls. Well, if nothing else, it may turn out to have been incautious to mention Winterfell in front of the onlooking servants. And now we want to get back to something we mentioned earlier, the possible chess analogy. In this segment, we've outlined how Sansa could go from being a pawn in Littlefinger's game to seizing control of the board for herself. And so the time has come to bring back that chess move we mentioned earlier, where a pawn reaches the far side of the board and becomes a queen. Right. Now, in our North Remembers episode, we mentioned that we think Sansa, Littlefinger, and the Vale are the biggest wild card in what's going to happen relative to the Northern conspiracies. We also said that while we don't think Jon Snow would willingly disinherit his siblings, we see the potential for some conflict arising around the wild cards of those that he had previously thought dead or lost. But ultimately, our position is that John isn't destined to be the King in the North or the Lord of Winterfell. That title will pass to one of the living descendants of Ned Stark. 
And with Bran's future being uncertain and our feeling that Rickon and his shaggy dog are a true shaggy dog story, meaning his arc will have little or anticlimactic relevance to the main story, we think Sansa, the one-time pawn who has advanced across the entire board to the end game as Queen in the North, has great narrative possibility. Yes, we do. No matter how Peter Baelish's arc ends, we don't think he'll survive the story. We do think he'll be remembered for being an almost flawless player in the Game of Thrones, a player who showed tactics ranging from the sociopathic to the Machiavellian. But we do say almost flawless, as we think Baelish will be undone by his weakness for Catelyn and by proxy Sansa. And in the final analysis, if the driving force behind Littlefinger's long game, as well as his downfall, is rooted in those events from his youth, we think there's a potential for some pathos to the character. And this potential for pathos may be somewhat explained by George R. R. Martin's comment that there's a lot of Gatsby in Littlefinger, referring to the title character from F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby. Yeah, and a heads up here, if you want to avoid light Great Gatsby spoilers, you may want to cover your ears for a minute. So George has said that The Great Gatsby is one of his favorite novels, and it's actually one of mine as well. Jay Gatsby, the title character, suffered from an obsession with a youthful romance, and his immersion in the gritty underworld of 1920s New York City gave him the power he needed to stop at nothing to regain the girl he thought he'd lost. While things ended quite tragically for Gatsby, George noted that he was, quote, desperately trying to be one of the golden people, which sounds a lot like our man Peter, rejected by the Tullys and then spending the rest of his life trying to make up for it. Remember that from all the evidence we have, Peter believes that he was Catelyn's first lover. So perhaps in the end, George will find a way to demonstrate that Baelish's arc had an element of tragedy to it, hidden behind the cutthroat Machiavellian tactics that seemed to define it. So we'll wrap things up by saying that we don't find Littlefinger's often discussed plots to be quite as far-ranging as he's sometimes given credit for. Certainly his financial web is very complex and cloaked in secrecy and his networks of agents may rival Varys's. But while he is heavily involved in convoluted and many-layered plots and has a clearly defined interest in the game, he definitely isn't omniscient or responsible for everything that's happened in Westeros. Rather, he seems to have a specific endgame in mind, which is more personal than political, and most of his actions and accumulations of wealth and power are either tangentially or directly related to that goal. He's a complex character who has surprising depth and pathos and a powerful impact on many of the subplots that affect Westeros and the Stark family specifically. We've really enjoyed covering him and look forward to seeing how things play out in the Winds of Winter and beyond and to see if our predictions are true or false. And so that concludes our two-part look at Peter Baelish. And before we head into the credits, here's a word from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Hey there, Radio Westeros listeners, LML here. 
You know that funny story that Danny hears in A Game of Thrones about dragons coming from the moon? Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. This story sounds completely fantastical. Until we consider that in the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire, people look up at comets and shooting stars and perceive them as dragons. So instead of fiery dragons pouring out of a cracked moon, think about fiery meteors pouring out of a cracked moon. And you'll have in your hot little hands the cause of the long night. To hear the rest, go to lucifermeanslightbringer.wordpress.com or look up Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. And now back to Yoke Boy and Lady Gwen. So, thanks to Lucifer Means Lightbringer for that advertisement, and check out his podcast, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, if mythology and symbolism interest you. And thanks so much to you listeners for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of one of the most fascinating characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. As we mentioned, we'll be taking a short hiatus to join our friends at History of Westeros in reviewing Season 6 of Game of Thrones. And when we return, we promise to have something very special for you, so we hope you'll come back for that. And now it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for creating Peter Baelish and all of his contradictions and complexities, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use elements of his music in our production. Thanks also to all our listeners who spread the word and help out with donations. Every little bit helps, so thanks a lot, guys. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. We're also on YouTube, where you can access all of our episodes, comment, and support our channel. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.